Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest, Paul Hofford from the iconic Canadian band Lighthouse. We'll be talking about recording and working on hit albums and the biz part of the biz as we get a perspective about the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. Paul has a lengthy list of accomplishments as a composer, arranger, keyboardist, vibraphonist, producer, researcher, and writer, all for which he has won many awards and accolades. And he is an essential part of the Canadian musical landscape. My band Lighthouse has been a band that was always sort of uh, going against the flow. Rock and roll is a, is, a, is a style and a reflection of a pop culture that's generally very revolutionary and is, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, looks at social problems from time to time and all of that. And uh, we've always been very aware of that but try to concentrate a little bit on the sunnier days and the finer mornings and the pretty ladies. And uh, I, some- I did notice that like <laughs> when I went through your catalog, I thought there's a lot of pot, like you don't write protest songs. There's no real negative lyrics. Like most of your lyrics are positive, uplifting, feel good stuff. Yeah, we have, we have some, but I think the, it's true that the uh, uh, we've always felt that there was a place for a band that would uh that would make your audiences feel a little bit uplifted. That's well, it what... certainly worked for me. I'm a big fan. So, uh, and so I see here when I was, was researching, you you were born in Brooklyn, so you were from the states, and you came up here to go to school. I guess is that what happened? Uh, pretty close. I'm definitely from Brooklyn. Uh, I lived in New York when I was uh, a kid up until I was 13, and then my family uh, decided to move to Toronto, to Canada. Oh, okay. So from high yeah. school on. I've been a Canadian, and like many immigrants, I'm a, a real strong Canadian. Although I'm a dual <laughs> national, I have both American okay. and Canadian citizenship. What struck me is is how broad your interests are, and music was was a focus, but you had other things you wanted to do as well. Music and the arts I have a music, yeah. film, television, sound, images, writing has always been um, a pretty big focus. The one thing I learned early on about performing, uh, and I still love it more than anything else that I do, it's really all about the audience. Mm -hmm. You know, you go up there and you try to be a kind of a mirror plus, a mirror because, you know, you're just echoing back or reflecting what's going on. Uh, That's what you do as an artist. You just basically Mm -hmm. try to sniff the wind. Mm -hmm. And um, if something smells good, you say, oh, let's, 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 uh, Let's reflect that back. You make a really good point about the audience, you know, that, that it's that interaction. Some bands have this invisible wall between them and the audience. They play their songs, but you really have that understanding of giving to them and then the reciprocity where they give back and it's, it flows back and forth. And that's extremely important. So you make a good point. I always knew from as far back as I can remember, from I guess from the time that my parents, I might have been eight or nine years old, and they, they brought a piano into the house and decided to, to give me piano lessons. Cool. Yeah. That, um, that I wanted to make music, and I uh, wanted to be in the arts. And uh, no matter what else I've done, 
that was always a driving force. You met Skip, and then you put this together, and it was a pretty adventurous idea, I think. I mean, you had kind of a different sort of idea, and then, so I was curious, what was your initial plan and your, and your goal? Well, the plan was really simple, and the meeting Skip Prokop was uh, one of the many happenstance events in my life that totally shaped it. Before I met Skip, I had been uh, um, a musician working in recording studios uh, in Toronto, making all kinds of uh, records and television shows and radio shows and uh, playing jazz concerts. I uh, was a jazz musician because from the time I was about 15 years old, uh, I started um, playing. I, I put together a little jazz quartet and we got on a television program and I, I started performing and um, and uh, and was successful. So what changed for me is I wrote an off-Broadway musical that uh, played in uh, in New York City for about six months. Okay. And uh, uh, my wife and I, Brenda and I, moved to New York and we're, um, we're having a good time there. And I walked into a rock and roll club and it was uh, a Canadian band playing there called the Paupers. And the drummer was uh, Skip Prokop. And he recognized me from Toronto. They had a, an intermission. Okay. And he said, oh, aren't you Paul Hofford from Toronto? And I said, oh, my God, how would you know that in, in New York City? And he said, oh, I go to all the jazz clubs. I like jazz. He said, I'm a rock musician, but I like all the jazz stuff. And I, you know, listen to you guys playing. Anyway, the next day, uh, accidentally, we ended up on an Air Canada flight back to Toronto, sitting next to each other. Wow. The chances of that. Yeah. And uh, Skip was already uh, kind of a rock and roll star. Uh, he was... Um, had played with the Mamas and the Papas, played on all kinds of hit records, and his band, the Paupers, uh, were having a lot of uh, success with their recordings and performing. It turns out that the previous evening was his last night with the Paupers, and he um, had left because his manager, Albert Grossman, who also managed uh, Janis Joplin and Peter, Paul, and Mary and a whole mm. bunch of acts, asked Skip to uh, put together Janis Joplin's new band. So oh, he wow. told me about all about that. And said, uh, by the way, he said, I don't know if it's going to work out with Janice because uh, the record company wants me to uh, get new players in her band because they're, uh, she's better than the guys in her band. But I've spoken with her and uh, she wants to keep her guitar player. I don't know if we're going to see eye to eye. He said, listen, I don't know how this is going to work out, but um, it's great to meet you. And I have this idea for another band. If Janice's thing doesn't work out for me, uh, would you be interested in in doing it? Because I want to have horns and strings, and you're an arranger. You you know you work in the studios, you work with uh, orchestras, you do all that kind of stuff. And I said, well, if you do it and you do it in Toronto, uh, let me know. And then he hmm. called me two weeks later, and uh, the thing uh, putting together Janice's band uh, didn't work out to his uh, liking. And he said, um, you know, why don't we put together a band? And I said, well, I don't know. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> yeah. I like rock and roll, but what do we do? He said, oh, it's yeah. easy. You know, we'll do this and that. And that's how it started. And that was yeah. the beginning of Lighthouse. We made a demo. Yeah. We took it down to New York. And the first record company that we went to actually listened to the, of course, the new Skip. Skip was a, a somebody, you know. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah. But, uh, Still, he was able to just call up and make an appointment. And and we went in and two hours later, the A&R guy, artist and repertoire who used to sign acts, listened to it. And he got it. He said, oh, I know what you guys are doing. 
used to be the jazz big bands were really big, and now it's Elvis Presley and this whole rock and roll thing. And you guys have figured out how to do a kind of a big band with rock and roll. We hadn't really thought of it exactly in that way, but we said, yeah, 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 that's it. <laughs> and he said, uh, well, why don't you come back in a couple of hours? I like this. I like to play it for some of the other guys in the company. And if they like it, we'd like to sign you guys. And that was it. The first day we went in, it wasn't the, the, the normal story of, of a band struggling to uh, get listened to and heard and then looking for a record deal. We started out with a, a pretty massive record deal. And uh, then we had to make a band because we had just, you know, uh, we had a couple of guys. Skip got a couple of his rock and roll friends. Yeah. And uh, I got all the horn players and string players that I was using in the studios. And we did the demo. But then we had to go on the road and actually be a band. You're musically eclectic, which sort of cuts both ways. I mean, it's it requires the right recipe because you had vocals and horns and strings and harmonies. And you, you got many instruments and then percussion like there's lots of sound to fill up that sonic space right so you've got to find the right recipe which you obviously did were you the arranger for most of that i was indeed the arranger and that was uh that was the uh skips uh one of the things that he was a genius at uh was finding a partner who could complement his uh musical experience the two of us saw eye to eye on almost everything i mean it was great working with skip for me because although he was a hard rock and roll guy uh, and, uh, you know, he had all the cultural attributes of a rock and roll musician, but he was so experimental and so creative and he loved orchestras. Hmm. We both love film music. I had already done a couple of film scores by the time I was uh, 20 years old and uh, got a couple of awards and stuff. Uh, and then Skip telling me about how he loved going to the Westerns and, you know, hearing the French horns and the <laughs> and the strings and all of that stuff in the film scores. And I said, yeah, I, I do that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, and so when we put together Lighthouse, uh, one of the things that was uh, that was not up for discussion was that we would uh, uh, try all of these different things. We would try. Mm -hmm. uh, but definitely the idea of an orchestral band, which the original Lighthouse had a string quartet, four horn players, four rhythm section players, and a, and a lead singer. So it was 13, it was uh, you know, mm. a lot of people. Yeah. I don't imagine that Lighthouse could have possibly stayed together had we not started out with a record deal because it was so expensive to especially travel uh, such a big group and we needed uh, sound systems and all of that sort of stuff. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest, Chris Hooper, best known as a drummer for the iconic Canadian band, The Grapes of Wrath. So thanks for joining me today, Chris. How are you? Oh, great. Thank you. I guess you took lessons and just decided you wanted to be in a band. Is that how it happened for you? You know, we didn't, at the start, we didn't bother with lessons. I think we just yeah. thought we'll just imitate what we hear on records and uh, did it to varying degrees of success, I think. <laughs> some yeah. of the songs sounded horrible some sounded hey that's pretty good you know we we get together and my brother and and i in our basement and kevin would come over and we'd pound out who songs you know we we do the whole album yeah. a quick one all the way through you know things like that and play tommy and uh yeah nice. the beatles and you know and then eventually sex pistols and all that kind of stuff so yeah we kind of felt our way through guessing <laughs> Well, I, you know, it's funny because you, you make a good point in the sense that the albums, the classic albums are, are an excellent music lesson. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of those you still put it on and go, this still is a great record. And, and if you can emulate that or, or copy it to the, as close as you can, then you're playing pretty good. You're playing right along with the, the classic bands, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, again, I don't think we copied a lot of them very well, but that was, <laughs> that's a way to start, you know? I mean, I, it's funny. I talk to people all the time when you said how different things are now. Like a great example I always mention is YouTube. I mean, if we mm-hmm. had that back then, I can't even imagine how, I don't know, we, we would have been able to see how people actually played these songs, you know, yes. and, and then, you know, just little things, how to play this properly, how to do that. I mean, I think it would yeah. have really been different. I don't know better, but but different, you know? Well, yeah, it's, it's funny because as a guitar player too, like if I could watch mm-hmm. him play it, you can see what position he's playing it in and how he's playing it. Exactly. Right. right? It's less of a mystery, yeah. you know, or you're, yeah, but, but right. then again, I mean, there's something about that, you know, um, limitations are sometimes good. Right. And, and the, the lesser influence, like some of the people mm-hmm. who have really sort of carved a new path said, well, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to be the second Beatles. I wasn't trying to be another Led Zeppelin. We wanted to forge our own path and just sound like us. Exactly. So then I have to ask you about the, the early bands. It says you were in punk bands. And I'm thinking, you know, I've listened to Grapes of Wrath for years and you guys are melodic and smooth and you got these beautiful melodies and stuff. Like, what's this, the punk thing? Like, it was such a disconnect for me, was it? Yeah, it, it's funny. Everyone, I shouldn't say everyone, a lot of people say that because it's sort of the last thing they can imagine when they hear a song like All the Things I Wasn't. But, you know, we were influenced by that. We were playing British Invasion music and then suddenly we hear this record by the Sex Pistols in the Clash, and we go, yeah. "Wow, this is different," and it and it yeah. really, I don't know, it really excited us. And we, you know, we took from that as well the idea that you can kind of do it yourself, you know. And we mm-hmm. thought, you know what, I think we could make a record, and, and you know, it came directly yeah. from that for sure. We we had some early punk bands and recorded, it, and me <laughs> and my brother had a band called Gentlemen of Horror. We put out a single, um, which was yeah. kind of kind of fun you know we thought oh we can do it we're all these vancouver punk bands are doing why don't we do it so we put one out ourselves, and it's kind of cool you know with the the punk thing as we kept going along in that we sort of got influenced of course by you know more post-punk music where you know these bands were trying to kind of you know stretch out a bit just go beyond the one two three four you know and getting more experimental and and you know some of that we really liked so we we kind of realized hey we can blend the energy but we can start blending it with maybe our beatles influences and more melodic right yeah you make a good point because uh that that you can still have the energy and Mm -hmm. the, the sort of even the angst whatever whatever it is but it's put into a more musical i mean even johnny rotten said like you know people were spitting on them on stage yeah. and stuff and he's like i'm, I'm not into it. i mean it's yeah. got to be more refined than that yeah but, you know. yeah i mean that's we always thought that was stupid anyway it's like <laughs> yeah. you know that was like to me that was always something you'd see on a bad tv show about punk rock that was the other thing a big part of it for us was we really were trying to reject top 40 world of bands and music and um, we wanted to do something different kind of on our own. And we, and even though we did end up signing with a major label and, but we always controlled it. I mean, you know, like say for example, record covers and artwork, you know, we always oversaw that and we, okay. you know, always oversaw our videos and then even started directing them ourselves. We, we never lost control no. of what, how we wanted to be presented and the record company no. went with it. So that was really cool. Oh, they, nice. they let us kind of have free reign. I think one of the very first shows we did was a battle of the bands in Kelowna. Mm. 
and we went up and played our own songs that we'd just written. Um, yeah. I know one was Misunderstanding because that was like one of our very first songs. We did that. And then, you know, we got the, the adjudication papers at the end and they're like, yeah, that's, you know, that's all good guys, but you got to play covers. And we're like, hmm, okay, well, we're not going to do that. But anyway, so we kind of yeah. knew we were on the right track. <laughs> we didn't really play bars. We put on a couple of our own shows here, just rented a hall, put it on, played for 10 friends. You know, it was that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, and then we, yeah. we actually started going to Vancouver really early on and playing down there um, in a couple clubs down there. You know, we'd get yeah. on support spots, that kind of thing. And at the same time, started making our first EP just on our own. So what would you consider your break then? What would you, what's the defining moment where you said, okay, we can do something here? You know what I think it was? We, we'd been going down, we'd play shows in Vancouver. Um, we'd come back home, work at the jobs we had. Because we just, we're still really young. We got out of school. Kevin was working at the local TV station. I was working at my dad's shop. Yeah, nice. Um, nice. And I think Tom was still in high school. But um, we went down one time. We were in a record store and we hear our, our song being played. And it was, we were, hadn't even come out yet. Like we were recording. So we went up and we said, Hey, why, why is our song being played in here? And it was uh, <laughs> Terry McBride. For, he just started network productions okay. yeah. and he goes, Oh, he goes, yeah, your producer slash engineer just gave me this tape and he said, I should check it out. So after that, they sort of said, do you want to go with network? You want to sign with yeah. us? Cause we need a, a third band on the label, something that isn't electronic just to balance it out. And because we had a lot of acoustic guitars in that first EP, and they just thought it'd be really cool, something different from Skinny yeah. Puppy and Mauve, which were the two first bands okay. they signed. Yeah. <laughs> so we said, cool. So I think that really changed things around because we'd been talking about signing and not, you know, yeah. but we didn't know how to do it or where to go. Or <laughs> yeah, that was happenstance, I guess. But then your your life must have changed quite dramatically right after that, right? Did they ride you like a rented mule? Yeah, yeah, not well. Yeah. Actually a bit. I mean, so we moved, we moved down to Vancouver from Kelowna. It was almost the last day of school for Tom. And we literally jumped in the truck when he was done and drove to Vancouver and, and just started practicing every day, you know, and would listen to Terry's big dreams about what we were going to do. And we'd kind of laugh and go, Oh, that sounds good. But anyway, and we, (laughs) and we just started playing locally and then put the EP out and it started to get noticed. And then our first video got some play on much music and we started touring Canada. And that wow. went for the next 20 years or whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> so misunderstanding, was that your first video? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Cause that was at the white rock pier, right? I could, I could yeah. see it when I, yeah, exactly. I could, yeah. No, that's cool. And so who did the video? That right. was uh, a friend of ours, Dermot Shane. So he worked at the Vancouver TV station, but we knew him from Kelowna actually, oddly enough, yeah. from, from the days we were in the punk bands. We, uh, I forget how it came up, but I guess somebody suggests them and we ended up doing it with him. And that was back when, you know, you'd just buy five rolls of 16 mil film and you'd have to make it work with that. Yeah. And then it being at the TV station, he, he just edited it at, at night at yeah. the TV station. But you needed that video. I mean, back then yeah. you had to have a video with your song, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, so well, yeah, that cool. was 85, I guess, when that mm-hmm. video, video came out, EMI. Uh, Capitol Records, EMI, they saw us playing there in town and they saw us playing at a club, the Savoy Club, and they really dug it because the president, you know, he was a big fan of the 60s and all that. And he heard that in us. 
you know, with the harmonies yeah. and it really, oh, no really struck that. him as something he, he liked. So he started talking to, to network about signing us directly to, to capital. Eventually that happened. I mean, the way it worked was EMI basically took over our contract with network. This goes back to what I said about how we kind of always retain control of everything we did because with taking over the network contract, which was really basic contract and uh and they kept in the, the main elements of it like we had say in everything nice. i still find it amazing they went for this but they did everything my guest recording artist producer blair packham perhaps best known for his 80s band the jitters he's basically done it all from touring recording producing and much more i started writing songs as a teenager when i was still in high school and uh and i, I had my first bands then and i was actually producing people at that point too because I somehow figured out that if I produce other people, then I'll get studio experience and, right. you know, I'll learn how to do that and how, that, how to work with musicians and, and bands and, and so forth. The fallout of that was I ended up getting a job because of it, because I kept going to the same studio and the owner of the studio thought, well, he keeps bringing in clients like all the yeah. time. I was bringing in people, you know, once every month or every, you know, two weeks, I'd be bringing in a new artist. Yeah. And uh, I never asked to get paid by anybody, and which is part of the attraction, I think, was, you know, mm. you, you know, you can have this inexperienced, inexperienced producer, but it won't cost you anything. So the studio hired me and I ended up working there for five years full time and learning how to be an engineer and learning how to, how to more, you know, work with bands and recording all kinds of famous people, too, which was exciting. Yeah. Worked out really well. That that job with that studio changed my life. For you, when you got involved in this, how, how did you come up and, and decide that you could make a career out of this? Like, did you have some kind of defining moment where you said, okay, I, I can make something out of this? Or did it kind of morph into what you were doing? Because you had the amazing tools of Black Slacks. I read that part of your, <laughs> That's your right. history. Yeah, well, the amazing tools was uh, a just out of high school band. And uh, they already existed. They were a great band. They were mm -hmm. really happening. And uh, uh, they invited me to be in the band when their singer left. And uh Sort of with some of those guys, I, then we decided we could go on the road, you know, but the amazing tools, that material, you know, on uh, you could make a living in those days playing in Ontario, uh, small towns in northern Ontario, mm -hmm. and uh, you'd play six nights a week. So some of the amazing tools and I formed a band called Black Slacks and we went on the road and uh, toured around. And then I was in a band called The Zebras uh, for a little while. And it was in The Zebras, which was somebody else's band. I yeah. thought, I don't want to do this anymore. If I'm going to, like, we weren't, it's not like we were knocking them dead or anything like that. You know, people were reacting politely at best to our stuff. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, if they're going to react like that, I might as well do my own songs. Because I was yeah. already writing songs and, and, you know, and I felt strongly about that. All the people I admired were songwriters. Elvis Costello and the police and all those new wave, you know, acts at the time. Uh, Nick Lowe, all the people that I admired, you know, they weren't doing cover songs. And I yeah. thought, well, if I don't need to make a living at this, then maybe I can do my own songs and, and play places where they welcome original material. You know, then I thought, well, I should, I should form a band like, so that I can do my songs because I didn't want to be paying session musicians. And yeah. so I started recording, uh, you know, while working at that studio and, uh, oh, nice. and farm formed the band. And, you know, after about five years of trying to get a record deal, we got one. You got this gig at Comfort Sound. You were doing recording and stuff, and then you put the jitters together, I guess, in 81. Is that yeah, the year? Yeah, our first yeah. gig was in uh, the fall of 81. We had a female singer, and uh, 
who who shared the lead vocals with me, and we had a drummer who never played with us again, and oh. the female singer never did another gig. We decided we we wanted to be a four piece. Um, two guitars, bass and drums band after that. And uh, yeah. the first gig was fun, but it wasn't, it just wasn't quite right. So we fired them and, yeah. uh, but they're, you know, both of them are still friends for whatever okay. that's worth. I did notice that reading through your biography, there was a lot of, it was kind of a hodgepodge of musicians. And then when you were recording later, you had studio guys and people doing guest spots and people in and out of the band and stuff. Yeah. It seemed like a, a lot of shifting sand there, I suppose. Yeah, the three main members of the band were me um, on guitar and vocals um, and Dan Levy, Dan Levy on uh, on lead guitar and vocals and Matthew Greenberg on bass. Um, yeah. And uh, so we were the constants. Um, we had a, a drummer who played with us a lot of the time uh, named Glenn Martin, and then we had a drummer who, um, who, <laughs> who, uh, is my lawyer. Um, yeah. his name is David Steinberg. He's also Rush's lawyer. So, you know, yeah. and the Rush, I guess, are jealous of me because he's my lawyer too. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah. And then we had a couple of other people, um, session guys, Randy Cook, who ended up playing with Ringo of all people. Mm. Uh, who else? A guy named Jimmy Scotland who had been in Glass Tiger and yeah, a bunch of different drummers. It was kind of like the, mm. uh, Spinal tap thing, you know, the drummers mm. would spontaneously combust. <laughs> <laughs> like you're trying to find that magical formula and it doesn't really matter how you get it. It's like a recipe for the perfect meal sort of thing, right? You're trying to find the right players, the right songs, the right producer. There was a lot of that going on with you guys, right? Yeah, there was. Yes, I, I would say there was a lot of that. We spent three years uh, in between the first record and the second record trying to figure out who would produce the second record. Um, I mean, we spent that time touring as well and writing songs and so forth. But, but you know, we were trying to locate a producer. We asked John Hyatt if he would produce us. We asked uh, a guy named Richie Zito who had done some cheap trick records. Um, mm. a, bunch of, a bunch of people. And um, then we had a chance to work with Jules Shear, who had written some songs, some hit songs. But, you know, I was a big fan of his uh, before. He, um, he had a band called Jules and the Polar Bears. Which, and I loved that name. I just thought, that's so stupid. I love it. Um, and he's a fantastic songwriter. Like, I'm a big, big fan or remain a big fan of his songwriting. And so we had a chance to work with him, but his deal was he wanted to co-write all the songs with us. And That's kind of a producer thing, right? I mean, they want a chunk of it. Yeah, but it. in my experience, producers at that time, they got, a, they got the producer royalty, usually three points, three percentage points, and then they got a chunk of money. Jules wanted to producer points the chunk of money and one third of all the songs in in his defense um i think he probably just wanted the songs to be really good and he mm -hmm. he's very particular about songs and songwriting so yeah. I, I i just think he you know we played him a bunch of the songs that we had already written we'd written 30 songs for that next record he rejected them all and mm -hmm. were they all rejectable i don't think so there were, there were some really good ones in there, but he wanted them to be his particular kind of song. So in a way, uh, the Jitter's second record, which is called uh, Louder Than Words and is hard mm -hmm. to find, it's like the lost, the great lost Jules Shear record in a way, except mm -hmm. I'm the singer instead of Jules. But the songs, they're, you know, we co-wrote them all, but yeah. they do reflect him and his songwriting. And we love that because we're all fans. So we loved yeah. it. But but it didn't really follow the first record very well. But we you know we wanted to work with him. <laughs> yeah, that's the rub, right? Because the producer is gonna his stamp is gonna be on everything. Yeah, 
So you got to kind of buy into that or else do your own thing. Yeah, exactly. And it's really hard to produce yourself, especially when you're in a band. Um, yeah. I was making a record. Uh, I started making a record and then I formed a band. I'm talking about today, these days. And, um, and I found that the guys who I work with who are great, they're great musicians and they've got great production ideas and stuff, but that's the thing. They've got great production ideas. And it was a lot easier when I didn't have anybody else saying, hey, you know, we could try this. And I'm like, yeah, I know we could try that. But I mean, I don't say any of that out loud, but I think I sort of get irritated yeah. and I think, yeah, we could, but I want to do it my way. But, you know, there's give and take with bands. And so producing yourself when you're in a band situation, it, it can be really hard unless, unless the other guys acknowledge that you're in charge and the buck stops with you because it has to stop with somebody. You can't endlessly debate yes. things. Yeah, no, that's a good point because I don't have to be in charge, but somebody has to be in charge. Yeah. yeah. I've spent three hours working on a tambourine part. Yeah. Go, well, or, okay. or, you know, <laughs> worse, way worse. You finish all the, you finish the mixes and then they say, you know, I'm thinking that, that third line in the second verse, I, that could be better. It's like we did vocals weeks ago, you know, but, but that happens all the time. Take me as I am. That was a video fact grant. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We got a video fact grant for $2,500 and, oh, wow. and made a video for $2,520. You know, in those days you were shooting on film and you had to have the film developed and then color corrected and edited and you know and so forth and it was an expensive thing so yes. video fact paid for that and uh we paid for the the lunch <laughs> yeah and then you did the last of the red hot fools that was that was a more expensive video that was forty thousand dollars that's what videos oh, cost okay. in those days yeah, pretty much across the board uh for canadian bands it didn't seem to be depending on whether you had a I don't know, a helicopter shot in it or not. It was all the same. If, you know, yeah. even if it was a stationary camera sitting on the street, $40,000, you know, hmm. so it was kind of odd. Part of the problem with those concept videos, I mean, they, they sort of had the, the death knell was sort of rung after a few years. Cause I thought, I don't know what you thought of it. When videos came out, I thought, okay, this is it forever. Every hit song is going to have a video and a concept video probably attached to it. And that just, it waned and died. Yeah. Well, I think, I think people, well, the novelty wore off for sure, but I think also yeah. people got tired of being told what the song meant because, you know, yeah. you like to have your own interpretation when you hear a song. Well, and spending a hundred grand on a video, which yeah. lots of people did. Well, yeah. What? A lot of people don't know how record deals worked as well. Um, that hundred grand was, was recoupable, which yes. means that the band paid for it eventually out of sales. Yeah. Now, if you yeah. never had enough sales to pay for it, you didn't pay for it. It wasn't like a credit card bill, but you know, say you made three videos and they were $40,000 each, then you had $120,000 recoupable. You add that to how much, however much it costs to make your record, maybe $100,000, which was a typical yeah. budget in those days. So now you've got $220,000 that you owe the label against sales. And then if there's a, say you get nominated for a Juno, like the Jitters did, then there's a party in your honor. The party is paid for. <laughs> out of the recoupable fund and say you get picked up in a limo because it's the Junos you're paying for the limo too pretty soon you end up owing the label four or five hundred thousand yeah. dollars out of sales it means you're you're that much farther away from from making money we didn't make any money from our record sales at Capitol Records at EMI at all like not a penny Jack Lavin, producer and a songwriter, singer, bassist, harmonica player, guitarist, drummer, and performer. He does it all. 
you have lots to share. You've done lots of things in your in your career. I've been pretty lucky to be uh, at the right place at the right time a number of times. And uh, also uh, uh, coming down the pike when I did, I think was yeah. very fortunate. Yeah, you're, you're right about that, the timing of, of the music biz and the buzz and the excitement and, and just sort of being in the middle of it was a big deal. And it was a sort of historical thing as well, right? Being that part of history. Absolutely. Uh, I got to meet some uh, amazing people. Uh, uh, so many of them are gone now. It's, uh, it's a little yes. sad. Yeah. So just in your brief history, you were from Chicago and then I guess you, you grew up with music. You were one of those guys that just kind of got the music bug early and, and just had a feel for it, a natural affinity for it. I, I would say that's fair. Uh, you know, when I first uh, uh, became aware of music, my dad used to like to sing along with the radio in the truck when we were going somewhere. And uh, the hits that were on, there was, uh, there was uh, doo-wop, there was uh, folk music, there was so many different kinds of things coming at you. So you went from you went from Chicago to San Francisco at 15. Did I read that correctly? Did you run away from home? <laughs> well... <laughs> Uh, I guess uh, you could call it that. I uh, I did uh, finally get per- permission after trying it out a, a couple of times earlier in my life, and uh, I said, "Look, you could uh, you could give me your permission, maybe uh, sign a little sheet of paper that says something to that effect, or I'm just going to go again." And so they hmm. did reluctantly, and uh, wow. And so that was just a, a musical dream or just sort of a, were you caught up in the hippie culture or did you just want to go out there because it was a cool place to be? Well, I had uh, the, the preceding summer, the summer of 67, the summer of love, they call it. I took a, a, fa- a, this, a second family trip uh, with my mom and dad and my sister uh, to California where we had some friends. And me and a former next door neighbor of mine, a wonderful gal named Ann Wilcox, um, we slipped the leash, so to speak, and took a train into San Francisco from their suburb of Los Altos. Walked through the Haight-Ashbury and sat on Hippie Hill where there must have been 150 drummers playing. Wow. And, uh, and I had a pair of cousins who uh, had uh, in a, a small apartment in San Francisco and had invited me to come visit them and then convinced me to come with them that evening and hear uh, the cream play at the Fillmore mm. West and opening for oh. them was uh, Charlie Musselwhite's Southside Blues Band and then the Paul Butterfield Band performing their uh, groundbreaking album East West and as I sat in there watching uh, uh, this wonderful music and uh, the pot was being passed round and round I think I had my first toke of real pot that evening mm. uh, um, I had an epiphany and I thought this is where I want to be and so it was only six months later there I was. Wow. And so you were 15, 16? Uh, I was 15 when I when I heard that oh. concert. And uh, when I left home, I was just about a month shy of my 16th birthday. Wow. And then so you kicked around there for a few years, and then you ended up in rural Oregon. Did I read that? You you played in a band called Pete Moss, and you lived in a, in a commune. You, were, you got uh, part of that culture. Yes, I did. It was uh, funny because I had such a great time in San Francisco, but then suddenly around 1970, everybody was getting busted. There was narcs and informers everywhere. There was uh, lots of bad stuff going down and a whole lot of, there was a movement to get out of the cities 
and into the countryside. And I just kind of drifted along with uh, with some friends who were living up in, in this commune in Wolf Creek, Oregon. And I spent a, a couple of years there with them. And while making forays further into the Northwest, I went up and spent some time in Portland, also in Seattle, and, uh, and eventually landed in Vancouver. And your brother Tom was already here, is that correct? Yeah, he came up uh, in the, in the uh, I think he came up in about 1969. Okay, and then so you connected. Obviously, he was already connected in the Vancouver music scene, so you would have been able to dive right in, I guess, and and sort of meet everybody and and just get your career off the ground as well. Well, he was pretty busy with his own thing, but uh, one great thing that he did for me was uh, hook me up with a legendary Vancouver musician named Joe Mock, who <laughs> played guitar and sang and wrote and was incredibly uh, uh, influential on me and. He was living at the time in a garage over False Creek and wow. uh, invited me to live there with him. There was uh, cold water only. There was electric yeah. and we cooked uh, our noodles uh, on a hot plate and oh, wow. uh, used the public facilities here and there. <laughs> How were you involved in Prism's first album? Well, uh, maybe my brother had something to do with getting me in there. Uh, I, I played on every track on their first album. But um, after the recording was done, uh, I asked their permission. I said, look, I'm, I want to go to Hawaii for a month. Uh, is it all right? Will I be missing any gigs or anything? Oh, no, go ahead. And I went, and when I got back, they had replaced me. With so did you play bass on that first album? I do. Okay, because I always thought it would, that it was Tom that played bass on that album because he's in the picture, right? Or are you in the picture? Well... I'm, I'm not in the picture. I'm in a paragraph of about 50 names saying special thanks to the bassist who got credit for my work on that album was uh, a fellow named Ab Bryant. But it was you that played because I, uh, yeah, okay, well, I'm, I appreciate you clearing that up because it was, it was a bit confusing because when I looked at the picture and then I saw Tom and then somebody said, no, Tom played bass on there. And I thought, okay, that sounds a bit odd. No, he was playing he played- rhythm guitar with Prism. Uh, Lindsay okay. Mitchell was the lead guitarist. Of course, yeah, yeah, and and so you played bass on there, okay? Because I, I I wanted to clear that up because I was curious about that. You got to play with Chuck Berry in 1976 at the Coliseum. I was thrilled to to be there and uh, and look at one of my uh, idols and uh, and uh, work with him. But he was uh, he was kind of jive to us. He came to the uh, to the Coliseum uh, about 45 minutes late, and the crowd was really getting rowdy out there. Wow. And uh, they asked him, I saw as he got out of his white stretch Lincoln limo, they asked him, you want to meet the band? Oh, no, no, let's take care of the business first. And I heard <laughs> he went into the back room and they counted 7,000 U.S., which he locked in his briefcase. And then he said, okay, I'm ready to meet the band. The first thing he said was, who's the bass player? <laughs> so I raised my hand and he said, now when I look at you like this, and he kind of glared at me, I want you to do one thing, only one note and go ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. So that's what he was doing most of the show. But he spent about half the time on stage. I think the show was only about an hour. He divided the audience in half and had them try to outsing each other to his biggest hit, My Dingling. And we just yeah. kind of stood there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's a living legend, I guess. But he had a reputation for being, um, you know, last minute Louie and, and pick up bands everywhere and stuff. It was a bit of an odd life and, a, and an odd way to go about it, don't you think? 
Well, yes and no. I've worked with uh, Amos Garrett. It wasn't the same thing at all with Amos. I mean, he didn't travel with a band, but he had what he called his A team, spelled E H, in every major city in uh, in Canada, as well as uh, a few cities in the states. In the Bay Area, he had one, and so forth. So at least the bands that he was, the pickup bands that he was working with, knew him well, knew his material well, and it sounded like a like a well rehearsed band. Right there, and in that case, you'd have a fighting chance. I mean, some of the, Chuck Berry's reputation. I mean, he he would get whatever he got. That's right, and and he was paid before he played a note. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, and so you got to meet lots. I mean, you played with Bo Diddley, right, and John Lee Hooker, and Taj Mahal. I did. You know, some of them I became very dear friends with, like Taj, for example. Uh, yeah, uh, we played many times, and I. When he was living in Hawaii, my wife and I went to visit him, and we spent a lovely evening with him. He was a great host, yeah. and okay. uh, and a, a, truly a great man. I just uh, I remember hearing his uh, first album for the first time. I believe it was released in '68, and uh, I I was just knocked out by this guy. Oh, very cool. And then you know, meeting meeting the legends. I guess in a sense, you have to remember that you're you know you're a musician. You're part of the show, so you can't be stargazing. But meeting people who who have gained that sort of iconic status and getting to play with them, it, you must do a double take sometimes. Again, I got to say, I was so lucky to be in the right place at the right time. So some of the people that I met, you know, the sitting in the Commodore uh, A dressing room with Willie Dixon, just the two of mm-hmm. us. Talking away like old friends, sometimes for a half an hour and more. I oh, learned, well. learned so much from him. Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Hare.